0: I'm Giles Brandreth, introducing Something Rhymes With Purple. This is a podcast all about words and language, and it's made possible because of my partner, who is the world's leading lexicographer. Her name is Susie Dent. How are you, Susie?
1: (laughs) Do you know what? For a minute there, I thought, oh, I wonder who he's talking about. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm very well, thank you very much. I have recovered my voice, Giles, because for the first time, I think, ever, I entirely lost it. I wasn't just a little bit hoarse. It just went completely. It's very disconcerting.
0: Well, when that happened to me a few years ago, I went to the doctor and I said, I'm doing a big event tonight and I've lost my voice. I said, I lost my voice. (laughs) And he said, Well, don't worry. I deal with rock stars who have abused their voices over many years and I get them onto the stage. Are you at the O2? I said, I'm not at the O2. (laughs) I said, But I'm at quite a large theater. And he said, Don't worry. And he injected me with steroids.
1: Oh. Uh,
0: Yeah, into my throat and yeah, yeah, must yeah. be
1: so painful
0: well I just Oof. thought about the money I was going to earn at the end of the day <laughs> and, and put up with it and curiously the, he did get me so that somehow I could speak but I'm not recommending it so, oh. so why well, did you anyway. lose your? Why did you lose
1: your voice? Uh, just a virus. I just didn't look after myself properly, as in I was just working too hard and talking too much where I should have rested my voice. Anyway, delighted to have it back. I'm um, sucking on lozenges in case you feel a little bit of uh, rattling going on my head.
0: We know d- d- you suck what you like. I wanted to ask you: Do you still have a cat?
1: I do have a cat, Bo. Oh, Bo! There you go. Can oh, you see her? Oh,
0: Beau. Yes. I love Beau. You, you know, we've still got the neighbour's cat, Nala.
1: Yes. I was dipping
0: into a delightful book by Henry Elliot, which is a, a, a book of bookish lists, and it's full of amusing things in it. He's got a list of the names of the cats of some of our favourite authors. OK. And it's just delightful. Um, Charles Dickens, he had a cat called Bob which is nice, not far from Bo. And when mm. Bob died, according to this book, Dickens had his, oh dear, his paw stuffed and mounted on an ivory letter opener. I don't know I would Ooh. do that. Would no, you?
1: definitely
0: not doing um, that, no. Mark Twain, we have listeners in America, his cat was called Bambino, which is not a bad oh. name for a cat, is it? Yes. Edward Lear had a famous cat and wrote poems about it called Foss, F-O-S-S. Now you should know this. Um, Samuel Johnson, the great Dr. Johnson, the one of the Ooh. pioneers of dictionary making. He had a cat. And when I tell you the name, you will kick yourself because you'll remember it. Hodge. Oh, does yes, that ring a course. bell? Yes, yeah, it does. It, it does, does ring a bell. We're talking yeah. about sweet things that also are comfort things as well, which is why I was thinking yes. of cats. Because yes. what I ought to do is spend more time stroking Nala than I do opening a box of chocolates. Mm. They're so Moorish. My favourite chocolates are
1: Bendix bitter mints. Oh, yes, I love Bendix. And do you remember Elizabeth Shaw mint crisps?
0: Oh, my goodness. My
1: mum absolutely loved those, or still does love those. They're a bit like Bendix, actually. They're not quite so posh, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, they're, they're still pretty posh. Uh, Bendix aren't so much posh as expensive. So if Mr. Bendix Uh. is listening and feels like sending us crates of them... (laughs) Sponsored
1: by Bendix.
0: Yeah, wouldn't that be wonderful?
1: Uh, Do you have a favourite flavour of a chocolate? I think my favourite chocolate would be, at the moment, a finger of fudge. Do you remember that? This uh, was this a an, cabri- uh, It is still a Cadbury's chocolate bar. I can hear which- the
0: advertisement. Isn't it interesting how it stays in your head?
1: Oh, it's like one of the most successful ads ever, which is a finger of fudge is just enough to give your kids a treat. A finger of fudge is just enough until it's time to eat. It's full of Cadbury's goodness, but very small and neat. A finger of fudge is just enough to give a kids a treat. There you go. Free ads.
0: Before you tell me <laughs> about the origin of the word fudge, which could yes. be the name of a cat, tell <laughs> me about the origin of the word chocolate.
1: It started... Off really with the Aztecs, believe it or not, and also the Mayans. I mean, the Mayans were the first to explore cocoa beans, really, and they used them as a form of currency. They were thought to be that sort of valuable, but they also made them into a spicy drink. And this was used at some of their religious ceremonies. And then, if you remember, the Mayan merchants introduced the cocoa bean to the Aztecs and they taught them how to prepare what became known in Nahuatl, the language of the Aztecs, as chocolatl, which means. Bitter water, believe it or not. And the Aztec emperor Montezuma would have this bitter water served in cups of pure gold, etc., Anyway, then the recipe, the word, I suppose, escaped and went to Spain with the Spanish warriors. Spanish court loved this foamy beverage that they began to sweeten and call chocolate or chocolate, chocolate. And then eventually it spread throughout the rest of Europe as well. And if you remember, Samuel Pepys famously talks about going to a coffee house to drink chocolate, as he called it. Very good, he pronounces. So very much a hot chocolate drink, really, before it became the solid stuff that we like today. So the
0: solid, the idea of a chocolate, yeah. the sweet, the chocolate, as opposed to the chocolate bar, when, yeah. when does the sweet come
1: I think that pain? wasn't until around the late 1800s, 1900s, really, that we began to sort of enjoy it as a as a solid thing. And I mean, it's just, I mean, it, it's never gone out of fashion really ever since, has it?
0: Well, it's a chocolate casing often filled with something inside, including mm. fudge. So tell me about the word fudge. It's such a good word.
1: It is such a good word. So it's an interesting one because I think the origin of this is unknown. And you know, today we we talk about fudging something in terms Mm -hmm. of sort of manipulating it, but in a way that's quite misleading. The early usage of fudge was actually very different. It meant to turn out as expected or also to kind of merge seamlessly together. And it's that idea of merging and mixing that probably gave rise to its use in um, chocolate or confectionery. But then it came to mean merging not seamlessly, but in quite a clumsy or underhand manner. So sort of cobbling something together. And that led to us saying, oh, fudge, which is probably a euphemism as well for something a bit ruder and the sort of fudging of facts and that kind of thing. But yeah, it, it, originally it was merging together because when you mix up the sugar, the butter and the milk or the cream to make the fudge, that's what you're doing.
0: Is that your favourite filling for a, do you look for a f- um, fudge filled chocolate?
1: I love really good praline.
0: What is praline and why, what's the origin of that word?
1: So, well, I haven't asked you what your favourite is actually when you when you dip into the tin or the box of chocolates. But praline is, it's kind of made by boiling nuts in sugar and then grinding the mixture down really. And it can be soft, but it can, I think, be hard as well. And um, you can get a, a sort of hard. It was named after the, the Marshal de Plessis Pralin, spelled P oh, R A S L I N. It's and an he- eponym. It is an eponym. He Ooh. was a sugar industrialist, really. So he was one of the early people to sort of make money out of this kind of sweet stuff, if you like. And he had a chef called Clément. And Clément apparently, allegedly, created the original French praline because he dropped almonds accidentally into some boiling sugar. So that's one version of the story. Another one tells how the marshal or Maréchal Who had a certain reputation asked Clement the chef to concoct this treat to seduce the ladies. And it said then, Clement then produced these little boxes of caramelized almonds that had his master's name upon them, which is how they became known as pralin or praline with the S in it still. And then that is uh, how we think uh, we got to our sort of modern creation. But definitely it is an eponym, just not quite sure of the root. So the Belgian kind, the ones we, we know today, a little bit more, slightly different creation, different recipe.
0: I love the way you say the Belgian kind, as though we all knew they came from Belgium. I had no idea they came from Belgium. Well,
1: so uh, the Marshal du plessis prana he was in, in France in the 17th yeah. century. But then the Belgian started experimenting with all kinds of recipes Mm. and the Belgian kind are kind of individual chocolate cells that are filled with soft centers. And for them, really, we have to thank Jean Neuhaus in Brussels in 1912. Now he had an apothecary, so he had a family chemist business. Mm And he used to serve chocolate-coated medicines. Why don't we have these these days? Uh, so Mary Poppins style, spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. These were chocolate-covered medicines and chocolate-coated creams and that kind of thing. And then they abandoned the medicines and decided to go with pure chocolates with these fantastic soft centres. And they also patented, together with his wife, who was called Louise Agostini, they patented the Balotin or Bayotin, which is B A. L-L-O-T-I-N. And that is the small decorative box, really beautifully ornate that you still see Belgian chocolates served in today.
0: Well, this is charming. You mentioned caramelization. Caramel is a, a, a favourite chocolate filling, isn't it? Uh, what is the origin of Car- caramel? caramel? Is that a person as well? Was there a cara or a mel or... A, anyway, who was
1: caramel? Uh, no, it actually, it comes from the late Latin calamellus, oh. which comes from an older Latin word even, meaning honey cane. So the canna is a cane and the melis comes from mel, meaning honey. So sweetness at its heart there.
0: Very good. What is a toffee? I mean, caramel and toffee are pretty similar, aren't they?
1: I think toffee is a little bit chewier than caramel, I would say. And caramel is often quite gooey and runny, isn't it? Whereas toffee is... Um, I mean, it softens when you, when you chew it, but that's made by boiling together sugar and butter, and then you might get some other things uh, thrown in. So that is an alteration of an earlier word, taffy, T-A-F-F-Y, nothing to do with a taffy that's a name for a Welshman. It was originally taffy, and we're not completely sure where that comes from. I'd love it to have some kind of onomatopoeic beginning, you know, for sort of the sound of getting something stuck in your teeth, but don't know where taffy comes so from. So we don't
0: know where taffy and therefore toffee comes from. We know toffee comes from taffy, but we don't know where taffy originates.
1: Yeah, we don't know where that originates. And then if you can't do something for toffee, which oh, is yes. slightly dated, I suppose now, which means, oh, you're totally incompetent at it if you can't. Do It For Toffee. That is first recorded in 1914. So toffee certainly was quite a desirable commodity for soldiers during the First World War. And you can imagine, you know, how wonderful it would be to have something so sweet and luscious. And so that's probably why toffee was uppermost in their mind, because the first record, as I say, that we have of Can't Do Something For Toffee is in the mouth of a British, Tommy, a British soldier. Why are people called toffee nosed? Okay, so I think that goes back to being tufty-nosed, really. Now, do you remember when I was talking about the origin of toff? Indeed, this is all to
0: do with the hat and the tassel on the hat? Yes. It's
1: the gold tassel on the caps of titled undergrads at Oxford and Cambridge. And social climbers and toadies, really, then became known as tuft. Hunters. So people who wanted that kind of, you know, distinction. And the associations there probably influenced toffee nosed or snobbish. Um, again, originally military slang.
0: Now I always assumed that toffee nose was because toffees are malleable. Toffee is a malleable substance. And yeah. you could sort of make it like a nose that was up in the air, a toffee-shaped uh-huh. nose. But you don't think it's anything to do with that?
1: No, I don't, actually. That's ingenious.
0: I'm off on a wild goose chase where I want (laughs) to find some ganache. What's ganache?
1: Oh, ganache. Oh, ganache. That is just that really gooey, rich, chocolatey mixture that often tops cakes. And yeah, this has got such a surprising etymology. So bear with me on this, because it actually takes its name from a French word for a fool... Oh. which in turn takes its name from an even older French word for the lower jaw of a horse. Good grief. Really odd. Okay, so let's start with the jaw bit. So, ganache actually comes from the Greek for jaw, which is gnathos, with a silent G. G-N-A-T-H-O-S. And that, by the time it eventually travelled through several European languages, arrived in English to mean a horse's jaw, and it also meant the same in French in the middle of the 17th century. So... The idea, probably between the jaw and a fool, which, if you remember, was the later meaning of that French word ganache, is probably because if you're a fool, you're a bit slack-jawed. You kind of stand there with your mouth open. It, it's probably just a, sort of having a kind of droopy, open gape. Then a French playwright called Victorien Sardou, oh,
0: he yeah, wrote famous. a play very in the
1: eighteen hundreds. Yeah, yep. he wrote a play called Le Ganache. Which ridiculed all of this, a satire, and it ridiculed all those who hold kind of reactionary views, essentially. Again, the idea of people who are just not very clued up. And so, again, a little bit slack jawed, if you like. And it was so successful that a Parisian patisserie house began selling chocolate bonbons called Ganache, possibly as a tribute to the play possibly a satirical swipe at politicians at the time. Whatever the inspiration, it is that that then gave us the chocolatey sense of ganache today. But isn't, what a strange journey that's had. It's a wonderful journey. I yeah. love it. Well, Very strange. Do you like nougat? I, I do love nougat, actually. Yes, I, mean, I do. do you, you, you would have or nougat with, without
0: said. having the chocolate coating. But nougat is spelt, isn't it? N-O-U-G-A-T. And yes. I think of it as a, a North African Sweet, but I, maybe I'm wrong.
1: Oh, like you're thinking marzipan almost. So nougat is made from sugar or honey and then nuts and egg white. And the nuts oh. are key here because it actually came to us by French nougat and a Provençal word meaning nut. Oh. Simple as that.
0: Very good. When I remember in the 1950s, there was a vogue for chocolates being eaten in the theatre. You went to the theatre with a box of chocolates. That was your treat. Yeah. Um, yeah. But people complained about the noise of un- unwrapping the chocolates, the sort of plastic paper around your um, chocolates, and then the noise. And so somebody marketed a quiet chocolate wrapping for taking to the theatre, um, and it was all all soft wrapping, so it didn't make a noise when you un- unwrap the chocolates. Is that amusing.
1: I think I've mentioned this before, but when I lived in Germany for a little bit, I used to go to the cinema on my own quite a lot, and it was in Hamburg for a little while. They had this just the most perfect thing. that I've never seen reproduced anywhere else. Essentially, you go and you buy a box of chocolates with no crinkly, crackly bits, and they contain ice cream. So they're a traditional chocolate box, but inside each chocolate is a little bit of ice cream. It was just the best thing ever. Oh, I honestly. love I that idea. It was just gorgeous. And they look like traditional chocolates. And but, speaking uh, yeah. of
0: Ice cream. If people mm-hmm. come to the Fortune Theatre on the eighteenth of December, <laughs> we have an interval in our live show, and we, we, Susie and I, this is a treat for us, get offered a free ice cream by the management. Did you know that? I had it last time. It was I just chose the vanilla. You did. I only, and then we went,
1: went off on one on the origin of vanilla. Oh, which, yes, we did, if of you course. come, I'm sure <laughs> this will be this will be um, mentioned again.
0: <laughs> but do come and join us if you'd like to. It's the eighteenth of December. That's a Sunday, just before Christmas, the week before Christmas, the Sunday yeah. before Christmas. So we will yeah. have to have a special festive edition. <laughs> what are we going to talk about? Well, I suppose Christmas stockings. So maybe things that you wear on your your nether regions.
1: Would oh, that be a good idea? Stockings be, undergarments. Undergarments. There's there's a whole lexicon on undergarments. I'm um, just before we go to uh, the break. Yeah. I just want to explain a little bit because it was it's always confused me, how a strong smelling fungus called a truffle can have anything to do with the truffle that's the soft, chocolatey, sweet. Oh,
0: very good. Please do. Yeah.
1: Well, it's a bit weird, really. Um, So both of them go back to the Latin tuber, you know, as in a tuber, T-U-B-E-R, meaning a hump or swelling, essentially. And that will kind of explain the sort of earthy hump or swelling that you might find that is the kind of the fungus, really, that you'll find in woodlands. And it's the culinary delicacy, really incredibly exotic. And I think the chocolate probably just looks a little bit like it. I think it must be, again, the shape, the sort of the sort of a protuberance of some kind, which is all a bit odd and not very exotic when it comes to chocolate. But anyway, there is a link between the two.
0: So the two words are connected. Curious, exactly even though they're so the different. Yeah. I went to a restaurant once in a hotel in London. I was not paying, I'm glad to say, where the person ordered wanted to truffle, shavings of truffle on top of their pasta. It was an Italian hmm. restaurant. And the bill, wait for it, for the truffle, £300. Oh, no. Isn't that shocking? That's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. If you want nice ice creams, no truffle being served at our live show (laughs) on the 18th of December, you can find out uh, all about it and get tickets by going to somethingrhymeswithpurple.com. Oh, you can obviously follow us on social media, Something Rhymes on Twitter and Facebook, or Something Rhymes With on Instagram. Should we take a quick break now I to recover? Really from, a break. Yeah, I'm I'm going in search of a Bendix bittermint. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a diet coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs>
1: Some peasant coke? No. Welcome back to Something Rhymes with Purple. And Giles, before we go on to our fantastic correspondence, guess what? Do you know what's happening on the 31st of January?
0: Um, Yes, the 1st of February will be the next day.
1: (laughs) We are turning 200. Good grief. So we have a 200th birthday coming up. And we decided, at least I decided, and I'm now sharing it with you, (laughs) that we're doing something really special. Tell me what you think about this. I would love to challenge the Purple people to submit their head scratches as, is there a word for X, Y, or Z? Linguistic gaps, essentially. Mm. So the Purple people love to email us with, you know, why isn't there a word for this or is there a word for that? And we're going to try and answer them. What do you think?
0: I think it's a brilliant idea. It'll be our 200th episode, which is extraordinary. That's four years or so of Something Rhymes With Purple, a growing community across the world. And we're challenging you to come up with a word that describes, well, for example... Is there a word that describes the feeling of simultaneous elation and horror? Excitement, you see, way, that is happening and horror that four years have passed. Um, Yes, there is. Oh, there is already, is there?
1: Yes, there is. Do you want to know what it is? Yes, I do. It's the Norwegian gruglede, which means happy dread. (laughs) <laughs> oh <laughs> it's a kind of strange thing anyway yes so there is one for that but there will be lots and lots of things that we probably don't have words for and we might need the purple people's help with it but i'm really looking forward to this i think it'd be a really fun episode good okay is it time for our correspondence it certainly is and time for jenny frame hi giles and Sue, susie <laughs> Hi, Giles and Susie. After recently discovering your podcast, I've been binging each episode from the beginning. I was wondering if you could tell me where the phrase chock-a-block comes from, as in the streets were chock-a-block. Thank you for that, Jenny. I can give you the answer. Do you know this, Charles?
0: I do. It's when you are, a lot of people who are also desperate for Bendix Bitamins are <laughs> filling the street because they've heard that some are on the uh, for sale at the end. So it's relevant. <laughs> That's the chalk part. Oh, block and of the, people queuing for a chalk. Exactly. No, I've no idea.
1: I love that. Well, it was one, it is one of hundreds and hundreds of English expressions that come from the high seas because it began with nautical use when chock a block meant having. Two blocks run close together, and that's the tackle that we're talking about now. And a chock here is a wedge or block that is placed against an object to prevent it from moving. So used particularly now with aircraft. So if an aircraft is what well, it needs to be stopped from moving forward, a chock will be placed against it, which is why, of course, we have the famous chocks away expression for when those blocks are taken away. So it also explains chock full, because things are so are run so closely together that you you just can't move. And the idea of lock as well. And of course, the sound helped to chock a block. But yeah, the chock is a wedge really placed against an, an object. Born on the high seas. Now, in the next one, Giles, I think we have a, a lovely voice note from Natalie Benjamin. Hello, Susie and Giles. I have just listened to your bread episode, Cobbler, and it made me wonder about the word banjo. When I was growing up, my dad would always call a fried egg sandwich an egg banjo, but I have never heard it used about any other filling. I wonder if this is just my dad, or sometimes the odd things he says have roots in military slang as he was in the Navy. I wonder if you could shed some light. Best wishes and thanks. Nat from Nottingham. Oh, uh, that's brilliant. An egg banjo. I wasn't completely sure about this. So I had to look it up in um, the wonderful Johnson Green's Dictionary of Slang, where he explains that banjo essentially was applied as a slang term for anything that was kind of round in object or similarly shaped. So I can only think that here we're talking about a frying pan. So fried eggs, eggs cooked in a banjo. And so eggs banjo were therefore fried. And it's one of just so many fantastic words, particularly within the Navy, but within each element of the military, really, where they have these fantastic slang terms for food. If you remember, Giles, a cackleberry or a cackle fart is a boiled egg. Adam's ale was drinking water. Adam and Eve on a raft with two eggs on toast. Floaters in the snow, sausage and mash. Car smash, tinned tomatoes and bacon, or a train smash is a car smash with sausages, and so on and so on. My favourite of all of them, I have to say, Neptune's dandruff. Any idea what that is?
0: Neptune's dandruff. (laughs) Well, it's something from the sea, clearly, because Neptune is, is the king of the seas. Yes. Tell me. Sea salt. Oh. It's
1: perfect, isn't it? I love that. That
0: really is clever. Yeah.
1: It is. All from the Navy. So thank you so much for Natalie, because it reminded me of all those slang terms that I love from the military. But anyway, shall I give you my trio? I hope
0: you've got a terrific trio for us this week. Have you?
1: Well, I think one of these is at least, in fact, maybe all of them going to be familiar or at least decodable by the Purple People. I'll start with Bibacity. You will know this one, George Giles, if you're Bibacious. Vivacity. Well,
0: no, I know vivacity. bibashes. It's something to do with drinking, bibulous? Yes. Vivacity? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And uh, I mentioned in our last episode that I was enjoying riffling through Samuel Johnson's dictionary. And here it is mentioned simply as the quality of drinking much, uh, which I think covers a multitude of sins, which I quite like. Very good. He also reminded me of rib roasting. And to rib roast is to give someone a good talking to. Oh, that's very good. Which is quite good. And this one is quite nice as well. I mean, you know, there's so many insults in any dictionary, but particularly Johnson's. A time pleaser. And a time pleaser is someone who complies with the prevailing notions, so the notions of the time, no matter what they are. In other words, they're a bit sequacious, which, if you remember, means slavishly following other people's beliefs without really interrogating them too much.
0: Your vocabulary is extraordinary. You are extraordinary, Susie Dent. I love your words.
1: I'm not, but I would love to hear one of your poems.
0: Well, I've got a new poem. A friend and neighbour of mine called James K. Harris dropped a little book off on me the other day. 14 by 14 is what it's called. And it's 14 Mm. sonnets, because as you know, a traditional sonnet has 14 lines. And I opened the book and the first sonnet is about the magic of writing. So if you are out there, if you are a poet, in fact, if you're a a budding poet, you think you've got a poem we should be reading, do get in touch with us. It's something at, no, it's not. It's purple at somethingelse.com, something without a G. So this is a poem called Magic. It's a sonnet by John K. Harris. Writing is a magic kind of caper. It really is remarkable to think, here we have a simple piece of paper with spells upon it printed out in ink. To conjure up my voice inside your head, I'm speaking to you from inside your brain. Or is this your voice that you hear instead? Or maybe more a mixture of the twain? For when I write down I, do I mean me? Or reading, do you think that I is you? From where I sit inside your skull, I see that while I'm here, you're there. But I'm there too. So while you read this sonnet rhyme by rhyme... We're in at least two places at one time.
1: Oh, that's gorgeous. It's yeah. clever too,
0: isn't it? Yeah. Very,
1: very clever. Um, we were talking just the other day in one of our bonus episodes, actually, about that use of I. Does it mean me or does it mean all of us? Which is exactly what, what that's talking about. I love that. Thank you. And um, We hope you loved it too. Please keep following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if you did enjoy today, please recommend us to friends and family. Something Rhymes With Purple is a Something Else in Sony Music entertainment production. It was produced by Harriet Wells, with additional production from Chris Skinner, Jen Mystery, Jay Beale, Teddy Riley, and, well, I'd like to give him a good rib roast, if any I could find it. Oh, no, that sounds very (laughs) rude.
0: (laughs) No, but we know what it means, so it's all right. He'd be so lucky.
1: Hey, gully. (laughs)